consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And my journey with joy has not been easy. October 18th, 2007, I made the decision to get sober. And it wasn't a decision I was ready to make. I was not happy about it. But it was a result of um, alcohol having a huge impact in my life. And I was uh, stealing from a former employer and I got caught. And I turned myself in. And I remember sitting in the, the county jail and looking at the two people that were in there and saying to myself, this is not me. I don't know what happened, where I turned that corner, but it was not me. Unfortunately, when that happened, I went into a deep depression. I was gripped with fear, and I really didn't know what my life was going to look like. I was hoping by the time I was sentenced, my adjudication was gonna be withheld, but it wasn't. And so I have a record. And it took a long time for me to forgive myself, a very long time. Um, I worked on a lot of things that was preventing me to see the error of my ways and my behaviors and my actions and the way that I was thinking because of alcohol. I was in an extremely abusive marriage. Uh, it was physical, very physical and, um, and emotionally damaging. And, uh, and when I stole from my employers, I really was at the very bottom. 2009, I met Scott and um, told him about my situation. And he goes, who cares? <laughs> Let's continue dating. And so we did. We got married at Vera Christian Church in 2013. And I would like to say that in 2013, I was on cloud nine, that I was happy and everything was making sense. And that was the beginning of me going through um, an emotional bottom. Um, I just felt terrible and uh, I put one foot in front of the other. I was going to meetings, but there was just something that was missing. And Scott and I became members. Um, I wanted to learn about scripture. I wanted to learn about the Bible. I wanted to learn about living a Christian life. I did get baptized and, um, and that was the beginning of me forming a relationship with God. I knew that God existed and I knew that he was everywhere, but I didn't know who he was. Mind you, at this time, I still haven't forgiven myself and it was a burden I still carried for having a record and I was still employed by this couple. And in 2016, I um, entered a program that helped me understand that I'm a very codependent person and it was the cause of a lot of my emotional issues I was having at that time and since 2016 and looking back 
in my history and what I've been through and the journey of forgiveness, it, that was the time when I really understood James 1. And it was at that time when things started to open up in my mind and in my spirit of what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to find the joy, however that looks, in the bottoms uh, that I went through and the highs that I, that I experienced. As much as James 1 is an oxymoron, through everything that I've been through, not knowing that I would be here, my faith has definitely been tested. And the joy and the peace that I have today because of the resur resurrection of Jesus and the sacrifice he made for me that verse rings truer today than it ever has in my life. So we are in a sermon series entitled Arise, and we're focusing on the resurrection. In fact, there are five, five messages in this sermon series, all looking at a different aspect of the resurrection. Somebody asked me last week, Steve, five, five messages on the resurrection. Don't you think that's a bit much? My answer to that is if, the, if America can spend two weeks obsessed with the ski trial of Gwyneth Paltrow, then we can spend 120 minutes talking about the most important miracle that's ever happened in human history. So in each one of these messages, uh, we've been talking about different aspects of the Resurrection. We start off with a, a rise to purpose. We have purpose, mission, and meaning in our lives because of the resurrection. We talked about a rise from despair and the silent Saturday in between uh, Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Last Sunday, our associate minister, Scott Blount, he was preaching about a rise to faith, the apologetic value of the resurrection, the four eyewitness testimonies he talked about, the testimony of Josephus, that first century Jewish historian who basically affirms the gospel narrative there. Uh, but And then next week, we'll finish up on Easter Sunday with a rise to hope, a rise to hope. But today I want to talk about a rise to joy. Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 through 8. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. I was just going to say three things about resurrection joy today. Number one, resurrection joy is joyful. Resurrection joy is joyful. That's a little bit redundant, isn't it? But let's just talk for a minute. What are we talking about with this idea of joy? My go-to theologian, Jack Cottrell, writes this. Joy is a feeling or an emotion that begins in the heart. It's a feeling of happiness, of gladness, and of delight. To be joyful is to be glad we're alive. This joyful feeling overflows into our behavior. We find ourselves smiling and laughing and wanting to sing with James Brown, I feel good. Jack Cottrell wrote that. So yeah, joy. So the feeling and emotion. Now, of course, it's more than that. One of the theological dictionaries I read rushed to clarify it's not just a feeling. It's deeper than a feeling. It's deeper than an emotion, more like a state 
of being just as our love and peace and joy, the Christian triumvirate, kind of a state. But these things, feelings and emotions and laughter, definitely enter into it. I'm not going to camp out here for very long. I think we kind of know what joy is. Everybody knows what joy is. And most of us want more joy in our lives. Whatever your joy quotient is, your joy quotient may be way up here, might be way down here or somewhere in the middle. Just about everybody could use more joy in their life. I know I certainly could. Daryl Singletary is a country music singer. One of his songs has these lyrics. Blue lights flashing in my rear view. The sheriff said, boy, I should have known it was you. You got 14 people in the back of this truck. I warned you twice, and now I'm writing you up. I said, officer, officer, what have I done? He smiled and said, boy, you're having too much what? Fun. You people don't listen to Christian radio. You listen to country music. I asked Ken if we could sing that today. He said, no. Blame that on him. Let me finish this. Too much fun. What does that mean? It's like too much money. There's no such thing. It's like a girl too pretty with too much class. Being too lucky, a car too fast. No matter what they say I've done, I never had too much fun. So we could all probably use a little more joy in our lives. Now, Christian joy flows from a number of different sources, of course. I don't want to oversimplify things. But it does flow from the resurrection. and That's what we're focused in on today. And What I want to explore just a little bit here, the relationship between our joy and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Here's the second thing I want to say about joy today, is that it's personal. All right, resurrection joy, that's what I should be saying. Resurrection joy is personal. Here's the largest, larger passage in Matthew 28. The angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, the angel said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. And the women were filled with joy. Now, I don't know if you notice or can tell from where you're sitting that I've capitalized some of the words in this pericope. I've capitalized the words Jesus and also Jesus' preferred pronouns, which are him and his and he. Okay, because, and the reason for that is, I want, to, I want to emphasize something. I want to put the emphasis on the person who was resurrected. It wasn't just that a resurrection had occurred that day that filled the women with joy. I never really thought about this until I was developing this message and looking at this and thinking, what is it about the resurrection, that, why these women were so filled with joy? You ever think about that? Because there are implications there are theological implications to Jesus' resurrection. Those are fleshed out later on, for instance, in, primarily in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I don't think those women had these implications in mind. Oh, he was resurrected, so I'll be resurrected someday. I don't think that's what's happening in this encounter. There were other people resurrected that day, by the way. I'm not going down that rabbit trail, but what I'm saying was it's a specific resurrection that filled these women with joy. It was the resurrection of Christ. And the reason his resurrection filled them with joy is because these women had a history with this man. They had a relationship. Who are these women? The women. The women. Who are these women? What we know from the previous chapter and the rest of this chapter, these were the two Marys. 
One is Mary Magdalene, of whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. He'd cast seven demons out of this particular Mary, Mary Magdalene. And we also know that she was part of a larger group of women who were followers of Jesus and who financially supported him. They financially contributed to his ministry. The other Mary, simply known as the other Mary here, was also a part of a larger group of Galileans who had been following Jesus. Galilee is his hometown area. They've been following Jesus during his ministry. And I think it's inferred she was also a contributor to his ministry, financial contributor. These two women were physically present at Jesus' crucifixion. When the male disciples ran away, it was these women disciples who remained. And they watched as his body was taken down from the cross. They followed Joseph of Arimathea and they watched where he placed the body because after the Sabbath they wanted to come back and finish anointing the body properly for Jewish burial. That's what they're doing in the cemetery on Sunday morning. So these two women were amongst the most faithful and invested followers, disciples, and apprentices of Jesus. That's what I mean when I say they had a history, they had a personal relationship. Now, I know that that can be a cliche, the whole thing of a personal relationship, but they had one. Deeply invested. And so it was that it was this person who was resurrected. Their Jesus. Their rabbi. Their teacher. Their minister. Their pastor. Their healer. Their deliverer, in Mary Magdalene's case, who they thought was dead. And now they find out he's not dead. He's still alive and available to them to continue interacting with and continue a relationship with. And it was the life, the living Jesus now, who fills them with joy. So when we think about this, it's, The living Jesus who is the source of our joy. The fact that he is alive and available not only to those first century disciples, but to 21st century disciples today and for our relationship with him. Speaking to his disciples about his future death and resurrection, Jesus said this in John 16, 20. You will grieve. That's the death. But your grief will turn to joy because of the resurrection. So Christian joy flows from our relationship, our relationship with the resurrected Christ. In Sunshine's testimony, she came to a point where she said, and then I was baptized and I began to have a relationship with God. We are filled with joy as Christians by the resurrected Christ because we love him. He's the object of our love. And because the object of our love is Christ and He is so great, we have a capacity for great joy. Never really thought about this until I read what Andrew Clavin wrote. Andrew Clavin wrote, The greater the things you love in your life, the more joy you will have. Love small things like clothes, video games, and money. You'll have a little joy. Love great things like your family, your friends, and the work of your hands. You will have a lot of joy. And if ever you should learn to love the God who made you and saved you, ding, 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 then you won the jackpot 
And even in your inevitable griefs and sorrows, you will know the true joy of life that leads to greater joy still. Because Christ is the object of our love, we have a great capacity for joy. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 4, 4, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Christian joy is specifically joy in the Lord. Our joy flows from Christ. The resurrection is God's way of identifying, among other things, identifying Jesus as the man. He's the man. He's the man for salvation. He's the man that's the object of our faith. He's the man through which the world will be judged. But in this case, he's the man for our joy. He is, after all, the most joyful man who ever lived. Now, we don't always think of him that way. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yes, that's true. And that's interesting when you juxtapose that with the fact that Jesus was the most joyful man who ever lived. We, we, often, we also do not always think of him as the smartest man who ever lived, but he was. Now I get this from Hebrews 1.9, where speaking of Jesus, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. Jesus had the oil of joy. He was full of joy more than anyone else who ever lived. And he is the source of our joy. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.8, You love Jesus even though you have never seen him and though you do not see him now. You trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So Steve, I want to have more of that joy. I want to have more of that joy. I feel like I'm not getting as much joy as I'm entitled to. I do too. So how do we we get that? How do we acquire that? Well, I would just suggest, I don't know, but I would just suggest that if this is true and a lot of this joy flows from a history with Jesus and a personal relationship with Jesus, just lean into that relationship. Lean into that relationship. These women were apprentices. They were disciples. They were students, learners, and followers of Jesus for most, if not all, of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, and that led to them being filled with much joy. We want to lean into our relationship with Jesus. There are a lot of ways to do that. And it's like any relationship, talking, communication. Have we talked to Jesus today? Have we listened to him today? Did we talk to him yesterday and listen to him yesterday? Will we talk to him tomorrow and listen to him tomorrow? What do we actually know about Jesus? Have we spent time with him in his three-and-a-half-year public ministry like these women did? I'm not suggesting that this, this is the only way or these are the only ways, but they are basic and primary. This is another one of the things I like. You know, in the one-year Bible, is simply a Bible that's structured to read through the Bible in a year if you read it every day. And if you follow that as your reading plan, and other plans are great, but if that's your reading plan, then from January 1st to today, April 2nd, you've been reading through the Gospels. Today you're in Luke chapter 10. And we'll continue to read through the Gospels until June 2nd. So that the first five months of every year, you, and by you I mean we, are walking with Jesus through his public ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, absorbing it, learning it, being shaped and molded by Jesus, apprenticing to him, just like these women, five months every year, year after year. Think what a difference that makes as we lean into our relationship with Christ. John Ortberg wrote, 
The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. By way of contrast, the psalmist said, I've set the Lord always before me. What would my life be like if God touched my mind as frequently as I touch my phone? I want more joy. We want more joy. Lean in to the source of joy, our relationship with Christ. It's personal. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that resurrection joy is relational. Now, not relational in the sense we were just talking about the personal relationship. Relational in the sense of, of sharing, relating it, relating the good news, relating the gospel, relating the message of the resurrection to other people. Relational in that way. Again, verses 8 through 10. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the, the angel's message. As they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And, and they ran to him, grasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. So they went to share the joy. They went to share the message. They went to share the gospel. Joy, joy does that. You, you like to share good news, don't we? You like to share. When we're joyful, we want to let people know. It's natural. We want to share that. Reading the Gospels. We're reading about Jesus is giving sight to the blind. He's hearing to the deaf. He's healing the lepers. Raising the dead. And what does he do after he, he does a miracle for someone? He says, now, shh, shh, shh. Don't tell anybody what I just did for you. And inevitably, what do those people do? They immediately go out and they, they, they tell everybody because they can't help it. You can't almost, you can't not tell good news and share joyful things. They want to share. Joy wants to relate. And people are attracted by joy. There's a saying, the medium is the message. The medium is the message is sometimes true. I think it's true in this sense. If we are a joyful people, people, others are maybe more open to listening to what our message is. Anne Lamott wrote, laughter is carbonated holiness. Bob Russell, in his book, When God Builds a Church, wrote this. An extensive survey of churches revealed that growing healthy churches were more likely to be characterized as congregations that laughed together. Almost 70% of those in healthy churches agreed with the statement, quote, there is a lot of laughter in our church, end quote. Only one-third of those in stagnant churches could claim, make that claim. Christian Schwartz summarized those findings by saying, the question of whether there is much laughter in a church has a strong correlation to the quality of a church and its growth, end quote. Now again. I don't want to oversimplify things and suggest laughter is the same as joy. It's, it's not. Joy is deeper than that. But they're often related. Joyful people laugh. Okay, that's, that's what we're saying here. Joy relates, it shares, and joy attracts. It attracts. People are attracted to joyful people. And Christian joy, resurrection joy, also coexists with pain and problems. So, and the reason I talk about this, under this point, is we, we encourage people to invite folks to church and maybe share the gospel. 
I think we need to be reminded that we don't have to have our act together to do that. Uh, I, I, I recommended Sunshine to give her testimony for this message because she's one of the more joyful Christians that I know. I know a lot of joyful Christians. Could have recommended a lot of people. But when I have an encounter with uh, Sunshine, I almost always walk away uplifted. She's a joyful person. But you can tell from her testimony that she has not lived a life free of problem and pain. And she does not now. She does not now. The women who left the cemetery full of joy were women in a culture where they did not enjoy equal status with men. Many of the early Christians, maybe most, the historians tell us, the early Christians, those early years, were slaves. They were Christian slaves. Now, they were, they were sharing the message, the good news. They didn't just share it to other slaves. They would share up people in other classes, other status. You read the Apostle Paul and his traveling band of missionaries. What a sick bunch of people. Not mentally sick or psychologically physically sick. Paul's leaving people behind all over the place because they're sick. So much kingdom work is done by people who are sick and hurting and disadvantaged. You know, when you read these stories of the great Old Testament saints, you start with Adam and Eve and Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And David, you know what all those folks have in common amongst other things? Troubled marriages and problem kids. If I'm addicted when I'm baptized, I'll likely still be addicted when I emerge from the waters of baptism. If I'm divorced when baptized, I will still be divorced. If I'm in a difficult marriage when I'm baptized, I will still be in a difficult marriage after baptism. If I'm sick, I'm likely still sick. If I'm same-sex attracted when I'm baptized, I will still be same-sex attracted. If I'm in jail when baptized, I will still be in jail. If I'm materially poor when baptized, I will still be poor. If I suffer from clinical depression, I may still be depressed. If I'm grief-stricken when I'm baptized, I may still grieve. Now, reductionism is oversimplification. I don't want to oversimplify things. And I've said that two or three times now. But there are two th primary things that happen in a baptism. Baptism is the occasion of salvation. And baptism is when God applies the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. When he applies that to you as an individual. When I say you, I mean we. But Jesus died for the world, and he rose for the world. But that doesn't happen for an individual until they're baptized. When they're baptized, God applies that to them. And two things happen in a baptism. Number one, God applies the death of Jesus to you as an individual. So his death substitutes for you. He takes the wrath of God for you upon himself so that you can then be forgiven. We can be forgiven of our sins. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's thing one. The second thing that happens in a baptism 
is God applies the resurrection of Christ to you in the form of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and regenerates our hearts and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to change. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the two primary things that happen in a baptism. Forgiveness of sin and the power to change. Holy Spirit helping us. These things don't change instantly, but they can change over time. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are planted as seeds. And God helping us, we begin to change. Now, my point, my overarching point, joy is relational. As these women went to share the good message, they encountered Jesus. And that's almost metaphorical. As we share the good news with others, it's like we're encountering Jesus all over again. It's vicarious. We get a shot of joy from that. But my point is we don't have to have our lives squared away to share that message. We can share that message with those who seem like they don't have it all together, a lot of dysfunction, with those who maybe are equal with us, with those who seem they have, they have life so much better than us and figured out because everybody needs these two things, forgiveness of sin and the power to change. Everybody needs that except for the ones who already have it, but, you know, we need it. Everybody needs forgiveness and the power to change. And those two things lead to joy. Joy. Now, so there's a lot of joy there, and I haven't even talked yet about the greatest source of joy that's tied to the resurrection, and that is hope. But that's next Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll talk about resurrection hope and black China. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we are grateful today. We're so grateful for the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we focus on the resurrection today. We think of these women. We identify with these women. This is our Jesus who was raised, our Lord, our teacher, our mentor, our healer and deliverer, our forgiver who was raised now is available for us. He is, you are not dead. Jesus is not dead. You are alive. And we will continue to relate to you and to love you and to walk with you, our joyful one, our source of joy. We praise you, God. We love you. We lift up our voices in joy to you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.